Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. Every day in the life of a school, especially operating a school in a pandemic, is a special day. But, but today is a particularly special day as we celebrated Community Day, one of the school's oldest traditions, and certainly tied to what we'll be talking about today, sustainability education. I'm Dr. Rodney Glasgow, head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School, and I'm joined by four wonderful members of our community who will introduce themselves, and then we'll jump in to talk about sustainability education, where does it live in the history of our school, where does it live in the present, and we'll even do some forecasting about where is it in the school's future. So I want to start with Stephanie, if you'll just tell us your connection to Sandy Spring Friends School and anything you want us to know about you as we jump into this conversation. Thank you. I'm Stephanie Cardelloni. I teach seventh grade science here at Sandy Spring. This is my third year here and our curriculum falls under a title of sustainability. Awesome. Want to go to Linda. I'm Linda Gerritsen. I teach fourth grade here. It's my ninth year teaching, and I'm also an alum of the school. Definitely the experiential education and sustainability part of fourth grade is an important part to me, but I also worked with Joe to develop a farm curriculum for all of lower school and thinking sustainably for the whole lower school. Awesome. I will then go to Joe. Hello, I'm Joe Heathcock. I am the community farmer for Sandy Spring. I've also been here. This is my ninth year. I'm struck by the quote that is attributed to various people, but says, despite all of our accomplishments, we all owe our existence to the top six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. And part of my approach to being a community farmer at the school is to put people in contact with that process that sustains all of us. Thank you. And Kip. Thank you, Rodney. My name's Kip Kelly, and I am an alum of the school also. And I also was a middle school faculty member for a few years. And I currently own and run Full Cellar Farm, and we're a small organic vegetable farm that's in Frederick County, about an hour from the school. And I'm lucky because the seventh grade has been coming out the last couple of years to help on the farm. And it's been great to get to know the school again through them. So happy to be here. Awesome. But let's start with our Quaker Spices and especially mindful that today is Community Day. And so you would think the spice that we'd focus on would be community. But actually, Community Day is steeped both in community, but also in this other part of the spices that is the center of our conversation today, which is stewardship. And just looking at some of these voices on the screen, it makes me want to start with, for our podcast listeners, what does stewardship mean in the Quaker sense? And why is that a part of sustainability and the conversation we're having today? It used to be spice, if you will. <laughs> and stewardship was the last S to get added on. I think when Quakers realized that, that we as a community had a deep commitment and connection and responsibility to taking care of our earth and of our immediate surrounding, but of the whole earth and environmental awareness and responsibility. And it comes from a deep abiding belief that that of God in each of us translates into that of God and light in the natural world and care and responsibility for the protection of our natural world. In seventh grade science, we spent the first part of the first week defining sustainability. And for us, in science class, we focus on natural resources. And so our definition is that, that we would use our natural resources so that generations to come have access to them. But I think, Linda, you nailed it on the head. Stewardship throws that word responsibility in there. We can use and we can be 
sustainable, but stewardship gives me ownership of that, makes it a little bit more personal connection. And I feel not only should I do sustainability because it's the right thing to do, but stewardship throws that responsibility. I like that. The word steward is a word that's often associated with farming and being a steward of the land and taking care of it. And I think that it's a great attribute of Quakerism that it's woven into that as well. For me personally, one major motivator for me to want to farm is to take care of a piece of property and leave it better than it has been. I think, Kip, what you just said really resonates with me. And that when you look at farming globally, there are a lot of, call them externalities, call them environmental damage. As part of the process of growing our food, there's a cost to the earth. And the steward is the one who's making that accounting at the end of the day and saying, did we take more than we gave? How much is left? Who's going to be able to use this when we're done? And the approach of leaving something better than where you found it, especially the land, the earth, is to me the fundamental definition of stewardship. With that framing, thinking about the other thing we celebrated today was the 60th anniversary of the school's founding and kicking off our deep acknowledgement of that. And thinking about it was 1961 that the school began, but it was 1959 that Brooke Moore stood up in Quaker meeting and gave the inspired thought of perhaps we should think about starting a school. And one of the major things that happened in the trajectory from that idea to the reality was Esther Scott gave 140 acres of her own land, which was originally farmland, to start the school. And, and one of our biggest assets to this day will be the gift of that land. And so thinking about just going back to the 59, 61 sort of era, and the idea that this land was really the thing that kind of began the reality of the school, where did sustainability and even the school's own campus and the sustainability of that gift of land live then and then also now in the curriculum of the school? We use terms like campus as classroom and there's experiential education and the education world is variously defined, but our campus is itself not only a financial asset, but these 140 green acres with trees growing on them. I'm thinking of things that Linda's done before with the lower school, where a lesson in itself is just sitting quietly in the same spot on the campus multiple times throughout the year. And those observations, those activities like we're doing on community day, where you're like, okay, I'm spreading mulch, I'm spreading compost, but then comes the why. And the campus enables so many of those lessons that are foundational to our education approach to happen because there's space, the beauty, the biology, the living things within that space, and the ability to change it for the future based on your action. It's funny, I have really very warm memories of being a ninth grader when I, we were at the community house. So we went to school in the community house and then biked over to campus to have the rest of our day there. And so there was this active traveling back and forth between the community house and meeting for worship in the graveyard there regularly. And we were outside a lot. Science courses that year were trees and pond and biomes and niches. And each science course was just deep dive into something outside near us. And it felt incredibly vibrant and invigorating and alive. We also did big trips off campus. And that activity that Joe was talking about that I do with students now was similar to something that I did as a ninth grader here many years ago. So I think the idea of learning from this campus and being able to be connected to it is a really important part of our history. And I think figuring out how to make it actually a viable, tangible part of our present and our future is a really important thing.
You look at those pictures of people starting the school and it was students out there helping with it. It was more hands-on engaged part of it. And as technology has come in and as we've gotten bigger, how do we keep that rich connection to the land is a really important question. It delighted me that today when I asked my fourth graders, what was something that they cherished about our community at Sandy Spring today, that two of the 16 stickies that went on my board were the nature here. So clearly it's, it speaks to them now. It's important to them now. It's an important part of going to school here. And Linda, that makes me think of, to piggyback on what you said, it's almost like the land and the uh, campus is kind of like another character that you went to school with. I can go back to the campus though and relive my memories of being a student and it may look different, but just going there and being in that space reminds you of those things. So that's a neat uh, attribute that we're lucky to have. I, I think too, I don't think I know, one of my goals is to expose the kids here on campus to right now we're currently talking about why leaves change color in the fall. We, we just finished up talking about seasons. And so we went outside and we made observations. What are 10 things that show us that a new season is coming. And I said, I know you did this in, in lower school and we're going to go deeper. Like why is the air temperature dropping and um, why do we have less daylight hours and those things. So we're trying to build on stuff in the middle school, but what really drives it home for me is last week, you know, I had a student who raised their hand and said, we were talking about this today at the dinner table. And I thought, yeah, so that they learn about sustainability here and we can use it here, but that it goes home and becomes part of their life and their home life as well. And Kip, I think you may have rebranded one of our pillars. I love it. Campus as a classmate versus campus as a, as a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to think about where do we partner with our campus to really do some learning that can only truly be done on our space now. And I'm looking at Linda in the lower school and thinking about just what I've been able to witness, the Oregon Trail, for example, right? To be able to recreate that experience with on our campus. And wondering if we have another example or two of in the lower school curriculum where sustainability and the use of the land come up and feature in what we're doing there. It's easy with small children to go outside and just explore and wonder and be amazed. And so I think it's a natural part of our whole lower school at, at many levels. So the natural drive to, to wonder and explore and learn figures through that the actual connection to taking care of though, like how intentionally we collect our scraps up for the three and four and five-year-olds and take that to the compost so that we are part of the compost, that we're not wasting food, but that's going into the compost system. That has always been part of it. So there are intentional things like that that absolutely factor into what we're doing and been much harder in the pandemic with how we're eating, honestly. But then I think for me, like the pond is something that we study a lot and we watch the seasons of the pond and also effects of treating the pond. So that's been an, an interesting source of something that is is how do we sustainably keep critters in the pond, but then also use the pond for swimming. And so that's been a, an interesting conversation that we've had about natural bodies of water. And I think that it, particularly when we are doing our regular farm curriculum, and it's really nice to be able to tie the time on the farm and the time outside and learning about how we are growing food and sustainability practices on the farm, and then weave those into different science units throughout the lower school. And it just feels like it's a really beautiful dovetail. For example, like erosion and weathering and that kind of thing in fourth grade can go into cover crop planting out in the fields. And it's just this direct tie and it's, wow, we see it and it makes a difference. The whole part about water quality has been something that we've worked on within the lens of sustainability. And the lower school has really, I think, benefited by that. And here's like the, the creek, the trees, they're sort of a metaphor for something else. 
and you start with one tangible local thing that you can see and then you realize that this creek that you're looking at is the Anacostia River downstream. And then some of the lower school classes will go down to the lower Anacostia River. They'll hear about the 20 years of work that it's been taking to make the Anacostia River swimmable and fishable again. They'll realize that the water that flows off of our campus flows down through this same channel and out into the bay. And you go from your metaphorical or your archetypal creek to a specific thing that then connects to a regional thing that connects to a global thing. And just that unfolding of sustainability, not only in the things you can see and touch, but then extrapolating those lessons to bigger scales. That's, that's the essence of what we're doing. And I think like with the farm talking about, I said the six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains, if you don't have quality water, you can't grow quality vegetables and the effort to protect that is not always a one-to-one -one effort. You're not like, okay, we cleaned this. It's clean now. It's an ongoing process that we want people to understand and be involved in starting with lower school kids. And Stephanie, I'm wondering how that ramps up to our middle school. So we take a little bit broader picture. We have gone and walked to the farm here on campus and we look to see what, you know, is being grown. We've walked and helped plant the cover crops in the fall. And then in the fall, pre-COVID, we went to Kip's farm and, and spent the night wind camping. And then we would go to Kip's farm and go to another local farm and help him harvest and hear all the things that are done on his farm made a nice delicious lunch using everything that Kip grows and some things that we would bring along that was extra but that was a, a beautiful trip that that we took this year in place of that trip we still did very similar activities we watched a movie on sustainable farming we watched the biggest little farm so that they could see a farm that is in action but they dealt with the biodiversity and we talked a lot about the stuff that we would talk about on our farm here on campus and that Kip would talk about at his farm why biodiversity is so important Important. We talked about soil for sure, the importance of microorganisms. And so we take it a little bit broader beyond the farming too, because we go all the way up to climate change, definitely affecting us here locally, but we've got to take a broader picture and we start with plants and we work up through photosynthesis and then the oxygen carbon dioxide cycle. And we look at the atmosphere and we differentiate what's global warming, what do greenhouse gases do, what's climate change, and then bring it back why is this happening? What can we do locally? How is it affecting us locally? So we start local and get a little bit broader. And then Joe, I'm wondering in the upper school, I know there's farming for fitness, for example, but what are some other ways that farm figures into the upper school? Today's a really good example of that being community day. The farming for fitness program is a work crew that is pulling broad forks and moving wheelbarrows around and having fit bodies through the production of food. But a couple times a year, I have the opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to have 150 helpers and we're going to do everything that we need to do that day. So for example, today, we had a big load of compost delivered to the Peaceful Haven farm. It's the time of season where we're turning over everything. Cover crop seed just went in and you get this leaf grow compost from a big truck. Give everyone a shovel and tell them what it means to spread something one inch deep and you do the math behind how much volume you have and how much space you need to cover. Those big days where every single person as a member of the community is out there doing something. I don't think anyone comes into school today and says the most educational thing I can do is spread mulch. But when you're out there with your community and you're talking about the importance of spreading that mulch and the long-term effect that it's going to have on the soil moving forward, it gives people a chance to be involved in that process. And upper school students, they are always coming up with ideas of things they want to do. 
either things that they want to grow that they think the farm should be growing or these like projects within AP environmental science or specific things that they have. I have this idea. I want to know more about rain gardens. And so that stuff a lot of times will either be coming through the science departments or wind up at the farm, or we'll try to get those expressions of things on those big days where everyone's working together. Because the Farming for Fitness program happens in the upper school in the spring and the fall, it's easy for that to get a lot of the attention. But when you have 100 people all working at the same time, we get an incredible amount of stuff done very quickly. And so like in the spring, we'll have a greenhouse full of transplants and things that I started with classes. It takes a few weeks for them to get going. And then I'll have three or 4,000 plants that all need to go in on the ground on the same day. And the upper school arrives and all 4,000 plants go in the ground on the same day, often where I intended them to. And Kip, I'm thinking about as an alum, what inspiration did the school give you to that career path? And, and how do you see that being lived out in your career right now? Yeah, I grew up on a farm, which was lucky. I was fortunate to be able to do that. So I had a good perspective on it. And my mom worked for a dairy farm. So we spent a lot of time there helping with that. And I, I think having had the experience I had at the school, it enlightened me. I think I've always wanted to farm somehow, but what type of farming was really influenced by the school. And when you can look at being a, a row crop farmer where you're farming thousands of acres with all tractors and you are creating food and growing food and there's a value in that, but there's also a lot of overproduction with it. And there's a lot of things that I think aren't sustainable. And so when I was looking at how could I farm and what kind of farming made me feel good at the end of the day, I want to say all the life lessons that I learned through Sandy Spring really led me down the path of wanting to be an organic farm first, but then thinking that why don't I grow something that people can eat and they can, I could see the people eating it and they can know the person who grows it. So that was really important to me. And I think this school has a major credit for that kind of influence. Although that was before my time, the things that you're saying right now are the same lessons that I'm hoping our students take home at the end of the day. And I heard in what you were saying, that intersection of sustainability, stewardship, the act of farming, and also community building and community care. And it makes me think about in the news cycle right now in our country and certainly globally, you know, sustainability environment is featuring really heavily, maybe even controversially. And, and the pandemic also highlighted some things around food insecurity and other pieces of sustainability and stewardship and the production of food, for example. So just wondering where justice lives. We know that justice is a part of our founding mission. We know that justice is a part of our, our Quaker philosophies. Where does that live in sustainability education and how are we using that to teach students about whether it's environmental justice or justice around living wages and food security, where does that show up in our curriculum? And the answer could be not yet. Rodney, I think it's an excellent question and I want to maybe explain why not yet might be a good answer too. There are, in the perception of the environment and the world that we're living in today, there are a lot of problems. You have a red tide that's caused from farmers over fertilizing their fields and that is dead ocean where nothing lives because all of the oxygen has been taken out of the water when the algae dies. You have massive amounts of erosion. You have long historical problems. You have overuse of water resources. And when we're teaching some of these things to students, you don't wanna start with the problems always. Now that doesn't mean that justice doesn't become part of the conversation as in how much do farm workers get paid? What conditions do they have to work in? What does it look like to actually get this food from where it's grown to your table? Those questions tend to be more student driven and we present programs where the perception is 
you can do this and here's how to do it. And we don't start with, okay, here's all the pollution. Here's neonicotinoids killing bees. What we do is we build beneficial pollinator houses and we plant cover crops and talk about erosion, but we don't go down to the dead zones in the ocean and say, here's all the problems. So I think that you're right, that the answer probably is not yet, but the students are the ones who are generating a lot of those questions and they come up naturally during some of these conversations. From my understanding of curriculum in the lower school, there's been a lot of shift. I know I just introduced what does it mean to have a great heart and be someone who's brave and courageous for my English unit, but we use Cesar Chavez as our example. And so we just talked about fighting for farm workers. So did the fourth grade just talk about that in depth? Yep. There are crossovers of justice. And I know that there have been times where we've looked at resources and just sharing of resources and in cycles. I, I know that these conversations have come up. It's an excellent question and really got me thinking about what we do talk about. And I was thinking about food miles, where our food comes from. And we focus on the, how far your food travels. Is it coming from California? Is it coming from Central America, South America? And we're looking at it from the perspective of the burning of fossil fuels and contribution to global warming and climate change. I would also piggyback off what Joe said, especially over the past pandemic, climate changes and sustainability in itself, environmental issues. Students take those in very deeply and affected by them very deeply, and they can be overwhelming and have a negative feeling. You can almost feel it in the room because there's, I don't know what we can do. And, and climate change is in the news, especially lately with UN reports and things like that. And I always tell them, I don't want this to be a, a doom and gloom. And so I, I think like Joe, I try not to come in heavy and we try and get some positive things and go a little bit deeper and then come back to the positive. But it is an excellent question. And then the, the spirit of the not yet was just your perspectives on the call. There's some alums, there are folks who are career farmers and sustainability folks, current faculty. And just thinking about, we're gonna start a strategic planning process in the late winter, early spring, and look at what are the big stakes in the ground? Should you say that in a sustainability conversation? What are the big stakes in the ground that you wanna put in to the school for the next couple of years? And on this issue of sustainability and educating around sustainability and environmental stewardship, what are some ideas you would love to see explored in the strategic plan? Where do you think the school could go with this over the next couple of years to build on this foundation? This is my soapbox. I'll go ahead and get back on it for a minute. <laughs> so I feel like the actual only way to get kids really to become sustainability educators and to feel passionate about it is for them to have a personal deep connection. I think we have to be careful because I really agree with what Stephanie says. I think kids are getting really scared about climate change and about environmental um, issues. And I think we have to figure out how to be like, yep, there's hard stuff happening, but there's hope and there are things that you can do and how can you make a change and how can you have agency and do something? I think that's a really important thing that we as a whole faculty need to be talking about how we are doing that for our students. But I also just feel really deeply that kids wanna protect something they feel connected to. And if we are not actually putting our children, all of them, age three to age 18 out on our campus, we have this incredible resource and they need to be able to be out in it and doing it and working in it. Just, the, just doing our beds near fourth grade today, 32 
fourth graders were just alive and vibrant and working together. And it was fantastic. So I think that like actual doing the work, not just on the farm, like to keep our property where it is, but then also just like figuring out rich connections. So trips to farm, but rich connections. So they feel connected. I think that's how we then move forward with people then wanting to do the next steps for problem solving and being the generation that is figuring out how to create change so that we're more sustainable. I've always said it with this is my 22nd year in education. I've always said it would be amazing to have uh, an upper school culinary class. And, and I've heard this before, so this may be somebody else's dream as well currently, but to tie that, tie a science class to a culinary class and we're going to grow the food and we're going to cook it or maybe growing the food becomes part of the culinary class. And then the culinary classes do things here on campus for certain events and, and things like that. And I know some of the stuff on the farm is used in the, in the cafeteria, but I'm like, Linda, if I can get a kid in their hands, put things in it and give them something that's usable for their future potential future job, whether that's the farmer or the chef or whatever that might be. I've always thought that would be an amazing experience. The food TV fanatic in me loves the idea <laughs> of a farm to table sustainability and culinary class. I think just what an excellent sort of cross section of a lot of disciplines in that. You know, Kip, I'm thinking about for folks in our school, young folks who are exploring careers, what are some ways they might explore a career in sustainability or farming? And, and what are some ways in which you're seeing that move and shift? What are some of the current trends in farming that our students might be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great point. I was thinking about that as well, because it's farming is such a deep and widespread industry. There's so many different places that someone with an interest in whatever can pursue you need chemists for soil tests. You need people who are good at talking to people and networking for extension agent work. There's people who want to run farmers markets and be on the sales side of it or the food education side of it. For farming, there's so many different places where you can sink your teeth in. It's not black and white. You don't have to just be a farmer or not be a farmer <laughs> and you can't participate in agriculture. No, there's so many ways you can. And there's so just learning about the industry of agriculture and the different opportunities there are there. It's a great path to, to pursue. And there's a lot, even if you don't want to do the farming part, but you want to still be involved in it, there's plenty of space for that. There's a revolution in the industry that's going on right now. People talk about like the green revolution in the 60s and increase in food production and stuff with kind of chemical fertilizers. But really with technology right now, there has been two divergent trends. One is for farms to get really big and the other one is for them to get like really specialized and smart. And there's all these robotic systems that are being developed that make the backbreaking part of the labor less intensive, but for a manageable human-sized operation, there's all these things we know about season extension. There's all these new developing software managed growing like shipping container systems that are being developed. There's a recent graduate from the school who called me for a reference and I was like, oh, have you heard of the Bowery? It's this New York City based startup. They got a job there growing basil and shipping containers that's on supermarket shelves. But outside of the like being a professional farmer in terms of dollars spent and hours spent in the United States, farming gardening is the second most popular hobby out of anything. And in the UK, it's the number one most popular hobby. This is a lifelong activity that regardless of whether or not you're pursuing it professionally has a lot of rewards. Who doesn't like walking out of their backyard and picking the blackberries that they planted six months earlier or putting it in a tree and watching it grow over the years. 
every person has the ability to do that, whether you own land, have access to land, or need to find a community allotment, work on somebody else's farm. It is one of the best activities for lifelong health, mental health, nutrition, well-being. I'm always like revitalized by just like getting out in the garden and spending an hour putting things the way I think they should be. So much we could do. <laughs> I'm like, ooh, we could do this. <laughs> to that point, Stephanie, as we're wrapping up this conversation, I wonder if each of you could individually dream out loud about the role that our school could play, knowing that sort of writ large, when Brookmore stood up, he envisioned a school, but he also envisioned a way to transform the world through a school. What role could Sandy Spring Friends play in the future of sustainability and stewardship on our planet? I, I just feel like I had this conversation with my students within the last few weeks. We've been talking a lot about natural resources, fossil fuels, and, and the future of transportation. We start every Monday about what's happening in the news and somebody had brought up the UN report. Somebody had brought up President Biden's commitment to have electric cars, I think by 2050. And so there's a lot happening. And I told them, I said, electric cars are, are great. It's a step in the right direction. I said, but I think by the time you guys are close to my age, 50, I said, transportation is, is going to be different, I think, than what you see now. And they're like, flying cars. Sure. I, who knows? The possibilities are endless. But I said, it's going to be the technology that you all come up with that hasn't been invented yet. That's going to change and revolutionize over the next 10, 15, 20 years. That's going to make the big difference in the environment and in climate change. And so, you know, I'm like, no pressure, you know, no heavy weight for y'all to carry or anything like that. But I would love for our students is for them to go out there and to have that beautiful foundation of the environment and the chemistry behind it and the engineering behind it and be able to tackle these problems successfully to make this place a better world. I just want to add one more thing because I think writing is a great question. There's this guy, I think it's Ernst Borlaug, who won the Nobel Prize in 1970. And he is credited with saving the lives of 1 billion human beings who would have died for starvation had it not been for his agricultural research. And the big thing that he did was he bred a wheat that was half as tall and still made as much wheat. And it solved a major problem called lodging, which is when the wheat falls down before it can be harvested. So he developed these seeds in Mexico in the 1960s, gave them to India, Pakistan, and Mexico, and a billion people would have starved to death were it not for this technology. I think, Rodney, your question, what are our students gonna do to change the world? Something that we don't even know how much it matters that will have an impact so much greater than we even know. And we don't know what that thing is. And it goes back to the school's philosophy of there's that of God in everyone. You just let them grow into it and they will do the thing that they are best at. My response to this was that I, we need to have students who care a lot, but then actually know how to work with other people <laughs> so that they can actually create and design and imagine solutions together. Because I think that's one of the things that's going to need to happen as we move forward. And so those I feel like those community building skills and those conflict resolution skills are actually really important if you care a lot and then you can problem solve in a different way. And I think that's one of the things that's going to help us send people out to be sustainability educators and sustainability workers and you know, you know, defenders of our planet. 
Well, a big container for a big conversation. And I thank you all for your time and energy in this conversation, but also just your time and energy to helping our students understand their role and their potential in sustainability education. So thank you. I have certainly learned from and am walking away too with my own questions about how can we deepen and enhance and highlight our practice in this area. And so I'm excited to dig into it. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rodney. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories Podcast. 